Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. All right, so we're talking about um, the omnis, and this morning we're going to look at the omnipotence of God. That means that he is all-powerful, that God has the power to do all of his holy will. He is unstoppable to accomplish anything he wants to, to, uh, to do. Who can stop the Lord God Almighty? No one. Now, when you talk about God being all powerful, that means his power affects so many things. So you can't possibly cover all of it in a sermon. So this morning I'm going to narrow to one passage because it talks a lot about how one of the many ways that God's power applies to us. And it's Psalm 2. I picked Psalm 2 because it's a royal psalm used for worship and the installation of a new king. And it points us, obviously, it's a messianic psalm pointing us to Jesus as the king of kings. Which if you're going to talk about God being all-powerful, king of kings, he rules. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand We're going to read uh, Psalm 2 together. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the reading of God's word. And every bit of it is true and powerful. And he gives it to us because he loves us. You may be seated. Now, in this passage, 
It begins with, why do the nations rage? So from right from the beginning, you have this rebellion, this power struggle about who's going to have all the power. You know, when I was in, in seminary, one of my professors said that everybody has an authority problem. That we are all rebellious. We want to be omnipotent. Since the garden, when Satan told Adam and Eve, don't let God tell you what to do. We have been in rebellion. And our culture today is cynical about any kind of leadership. From Facebook to Twitter, from the mouth of every politician, we rant and we rage. We say things like, you know what? They don't know what they're doing. If I was in charge, something would get done around here. We had some friends in Texas. They told us a story about their daughter when she was little. Uh, one time the mom was giving her a bath and she decided to stand up in the bathtub. And the mom was worried she might fall. So she told her just to sit down. And her daughter looked at her and said, no. And she said, if you don't sit down, I'm going to spank your bare bottom. And so she sat down and then she glared at her mother and she said, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> My wife told me when she was little that she had a housekeeper and a nanny named Mrs. Baker that she called Mrs. Bacon. And Mrs. Baker would tell my wife when she was little something to do. And my wife would look back at her and say, you're not the boss of me. So are you rebellious? Do you mumble to God, to others, to institutions? You're not the boss of me. Let's take this, take a sermon outline. Let's look at this passage, omnipotent king, the rebellion. Why do the nations rage? The people plot in vain. Rulers set themselves against God. They say, let us burst these bonds. Let us cast away the restraints. So why do the nations rage in rebellion here against God's omnipotent authority? Look at this picture this is Dirks Bentley. He is a uh, famous country music star. And one time he was being interviewed and they said, you know, Dirks, how do you, how do you keep going? I mean, you keep a pretty tough schedule with concerts and recordings and, and uh, just how, what motivates you to keep going strong? And he said to the interviewer, he said, well, if I'm being really honest in answering your question, what keeps me going is this. I really like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> Can we be honest? We really like the idea that we could control our worlds. Cornelius Planticus says this, 
like a hunter who, in a little flare of self-assertion, fires at each letter in the no hunting sign. Sinners like to draw pleasure from mere rebellion. They take satisfaction from showing who is the boss, from showing that no one else will legislate for them. Most of our anxiety and our anger and our frustration with people and circumstances comes from our desire to be omnipotent. We want the power. We want to fix it all and we want to control it all. In fact, we actually will put pressure on other people around us because we want them to fix it all in the way that we want it to be fixed. You know, part of having your God being an omnipotent king is that you could actually rest in your limitations and put down all of your fix-it-all ways and all your aggression to make your life work. But because we are rebellious, we say no. We say, I will fix it all. I will control it all. And when I can't, I will worry about it all. Or I will criticize and complain and condemn all. And we're not alone. Job did it. Abraham did it. Peter did it. All sin is rebellion. We don't like being told what to do or how to do it. And most of the time, the storyline is fed by this inside narrative we have that we're smarter. We're smarter than God. True story. This father tells his son to obey and his son uh, looks at the dad and says, dad, tell me why I have to do it and then I will do it. And the father says, well, if I tell you why you have to do it, then that's an agreement and that's not obedience. You know, sometimes we hate following directions unless we know the reasons why the directions are given We want to know how it benefits us. We want an agreement because that keeps us in power. So, are you smarter than God? You know, God says that sex is only to happen between a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. Are you smarter than God? God says, I want my people to worship me every week. And I want them also to worship by giving 10% of all that I've given to them. Are you smarter than him? You know, we hold grudges. We hold others in contempt for having wronged us. And God commands us to reconcile, to forgive, to be at peace with all men. Are we smarter than God who tells us to forgive? You know, God says, love your enemies. Love and serve those who are from a different political party. Actually think of them as intelligent. Are we smarter than God? 
Look at this picture. This is a really funny story, I think. So two teenage girls, one 16, one 15. And the 16-year-old already has her driver's license and she's telling her 15-year-old friend this. She says, listen, when you get your driver's license, you need to know that the stop signs outlined in white, they're optional. (laughs) So months later, when she gets her driver's license, she's driving with her mom and she goes right through a stop sign and her mother screams at her and says, mom, don't worry. The stop signs outlined in white are optional. Cornelius Plantiga says this, he says, a stubborn person tries to reinvent reality. He tries to redraw the borders of human behavior to suit himself, displacing God as the Lord and the boundary keeper of life. We are not really our own centers, anchors, or lawgivers. We have not made ourselves, cannot keep ourselves, cannot ultimately oblige or forgive ourselves. The image of ourselves as the center of the world is fantasy, perhaps, in its sheer detachment from reality, even a form of madness. God is God. You are under his authority and there are no optional stop signs. We don't set the terms He's the omnipotent king. So here's the challenge. I want you to be suspicious of yourself. That you are in fact more rebellious than you think. That while on the outside, you're put together, you're you're well thought of, you're well spoken. People think you're a very kind person on the outside. But inside, there is still rebellion in you. Find your rebellion. To know God in a way that is liberating, refreshing, and powerful. You have to have a collision with his omnipotent authority that exposes your rebellion. In other words, because we are sinners, there needs to be tangible ways, tangible places where you disagree with God's authority but yet you still bend a knee. And it might be your money, your time, your body, your future, your suffering, where you live. Find the place in your life where there's an actual conflict in you, where you actually do believe that you're smarter than God, that you know better, but you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So where's the tension? Where do you grumble about what's wrong with your life? Where is the white knuckle places that you grip? Put your life under his rule. Martin Luther had a friend named Philip. And Philip was also a reformer working alongside Luther. But Philip was also a chronic worrier. He was always panicking. He was always trying to get control of things. And he would often say to Luther, the Reformation's not going to work. We need to flee to the mountains. They're going to put us in prison. Luther, this is all going to fall apart. And one time Luther looked at his friend Philip and said, 
let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. Second, we see God's response. First, we see that God laughs. So God responds to this rebellion. He laughs. He throws back his head and he laughs. Now, this is, this is kind of crazy that this is in the Bible. Uh, the laughter mentioned here is when rebellious people are thinking they're smarter, more powerful God. But it's, it's a ridiculous laughter. Like, like, wait, really? You actually think you're smarter? You actually think you know better? than This is crazy, Right? Look at this picture. This is uh, Mount Princeton in Colorado. It's over 14,000 feet. Now, I've climbed Mount Princeton a few times, right? Impressive, right? Okay. Obviously, I was a lot younger. Now, there are 96 14ers in the United States. What if I told you that in one month I would climb all 96? Well, you would laugh. What's going on here is this is like a little kid standing in front of an adult, a big adult, and the adult's just holding the kid's head and the, and the kid's going, you know? And the, the adult's just laughing until finally the adult gets tired of it and just takes the kid and throws him onto the couch, Right? You know, Job was one of Job was one of the deepest spiritual men we see in the Bible. But he provoked God to laughter. And he got a firm rebuke from God. Look what God says to him. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you, Job, entered the springs of the deep and walked in the recesses of the deepest parts of the ocean? Job, do you know when the mountain goats are born? And then God laughs and says, well, Job, you know this, right? Because you were born then and your days are many. So you want to make God laugh? You want to make God laugh? Tell God what you're going to do with your life. That's what James is addressing. In James 4, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a place and spend a year there and, make, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the omnipotent king allows it to come to pass, we will do such and such. Then God responds by giving a decree. A decree means a ruling. It's not a suggestion. It's not an opinion. It's a declaration about how things are going to be. A decree is given by a king who has the authority, but also the power to make it a reality. And the decree given here is, he says, I will make the nations 
your inheritance and the ends of the earth, your possession. So God is giving King Jesus complete ownership of you, that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself. Your life, your days, your times, your possessions, your children, all of you belongs to all of him. C.S. Lewis wrote this very creative book called The Screwtape Letters. And the gist of the book is, is that this senior demon named Screwtape is writing letters to this his nephew, actually, named Wormwood, about how to manipulate his human. And so ownership is being discussed because ownership is power, right? And so Wormwood is instructed to keep the human thinking that he is the owner. Remind him to think things like this, my body, my life, my spouse, my career, my money, my retirement, and even my God. And then this is from the book, a quote. Screwtape says to him, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sounds equally funny in heaven and in hell. And we must keep them doing it. It's funny in heaven and in hell. You know, what's that catechism that we always say in church? What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And then the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ who is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. You know what I think we ought to do? I think that we ought to stop using the word Christian. I just think it's lost its meaning. I think it's lost its punch. What I think we ought to do is when we think of ourselves we refer to ourselves, when we think about our whole foundation of our life, I think that we ought to refer to ourselves as a follower of Jesus. That I am a follower of Jesus. I am his servant. I'm the servant of the omnipotent king to whom I belong. Tim Keller writes this practical application Deliberately submitting yourself systematically to the correction from others. The only path to become not a lightweight, but a person of honor is the formative discipline submitting one's ego to another self. This can happen in the local church, submitting ourselves to the council of wise leaders. This can happen in a marriage if we make it safe for our spouse to correct us. This can happen with Christian friends whom we give the right to speak to us regularly about our flaws and failures. But primarily it happens because we put ourselves under God's word, under his authority, 
under the preaching of his word. Why? Because he's our king and we are his followers. And then God responds by talking about his anointed. The psalm speaks of the anointed one. This is a messianic psalm. Jesus is the anointed one. We see in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul's saying it's a thing to be marveled over. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant to even death on the cross. That Jesus, the omnipotent king, sets aside his power and his glory to redeem us. And then back to Psalm 2, we see that the rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord's anointed. And we see the fulfillment of this at the cross. Specifically in Matthew 27, they, they're mocking Jesus. They're laughing at him. The soldiers take him and they blindfold him and they put a crown of thorns on him, you know, like a king. They put a robe on him, a scepter in his hand, and then they kneel before him and say, hail king of the Jews. And then they spit on him and they punch him. And then when he's on the cross, they mock his lack of power. He said, they say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Now, what's astonishing about Matthew 27 is, is that all the mockery, all of the scoffing is related to him as a king. They don't mock him because he does miracles. They don't mock him because he's a great teacher. They don't mock him because he loved the poor. They mocked him because he claimed to be the omnipotent king and they were not going to bow down. Brothers and sisters, do you know what comes before conversion? Do you know what comes before the gospel can really change you as a Christian? It's when you understand that your sin is rebellion. Your sin as mocking him as king in real time. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. You will not bow before the omnipotent king until you hear your mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And then from your knees sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished.
And then third, the omnipotent king, the refuge. The psalm rattles us because it talks about God's wrath, that he will terrify with his fury. He will smash them like pieces of pottery. So what is this about? Is, is, is God just lost it here? Is he just red-faced and just about to snap everything and destroy everything? No, what's going on here is it actually says, O kings of the earth, be wise. Oh, be warned. It's described as an opportunity to take refuge in him. And he says, do this with joyful, interesting, joyful trembling. We tremble with joy as we take refuge in God because we're finding refuge in God from God. God's wrath against our rebellion is real, but we are blessed if we find refuge in him. In Christ, we tremble with joy because we are not destroyed. Rather, we are folded into his embrace. There's some great verses that reflect this. One is because, one says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. <laughs> He's saying we should be consumed. But because of his great love, his compassions never fail. And they're new every morning. C.S. Lewis in his book in the Chronicles of Narnia Syria called The Horse and the Boy. And one of the main characters is a horse. And this horse uh, is about to meet Aslan, the Christ figure, the great lion for the first time. He's heard about him, but he's never seen him. And of course, you know, lions eat animals like horses. So the horse sees Aslan. And as he sees him, he is so struck by his power and beauty. This is what the horse says to Aslan. You are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. For I would rather be consumed by you than fed by anything else. Taking refuge in Christ moves us to tremble with joy. And then it says that we are to kiss the sun. I mean, this is just beautiful picture of taking refuge in God from God. Kiss the sun. It actually means to kiss his feet, to get on your knees, beaming with joy and show your king, your worship, your delight, your affection. I mean, you remember the woman in the New Testament who, who took the expensive perfume and, and broke it and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her tears. She got on her knees worshiping him while the, the stiff, uh, rigid religious people looked on, you know, scoffing with crinkled foreheads. We struggle with that, right? You know, what a, what a contrast of someone who's taking refuge in the omnipotent king and those who would scoff. I remember when uh, I first became a Christian, 
there were people in my extended family who said, okay, that's great that you became a Christian, but don't get too serious about it. And I remember thinking, are we talking about the same thing? You know, that how can you be, be joyless? How can you be casual? How can you be stiff? How could you be rigid when you're taking refuge in Jesus? Let me show you this picture here. Do you know these two men? Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, okay? The first two men to walk on the moon. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. These two men literally had the attention of the world. Every nation in the world was watching them. And so here are these two men, and they're looking down on earth like no two humans have ever done. And they're overwhelmed by the sight of this tiny blue marble in space where all the drama of human history has happened. All the wars that have ever been fought, all the kingdoms of powers and the rulers that have ever been, Hitler, Stalin, Genghis Khan, all the presidents, all the history of artists, all the inventors, every person who ever ruled in any realm. And they stood there looking down on all of it. So what did they do? Did they beat their chest in triumph? That they were greater than all the kings and rulers that have ever lived? Did they pronounce with arrogant pride that now that they could see what God saw, they didn't need God anymore? No, something else happened. Little known to the history books, before they uttered those famous words, Buzz Aldrin pulled out a container that had bread and wine in it. And he got down on his knees and he took communion, Christ's body broken for me. And he kissed the son. And then he read these words from John 15. I am the vine, Jesus's words, I am the vine you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul writes, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Seven Rivers Church, kiss the sun. Bring and continue to bring your life to bow before the omnipotent King. Blessed are you who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are a mess. We are so impressed with ourselves. We are so impressed with the glory of who we are and what we do. 
how we need to encounter you as our great and powerful king, that we might walk humbly before you, that we might rejoice with trembling, that we could be called your servants, your followers, your children. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.